0: Uh, now, um, are we warning just as we get underway with our next interview, because it's going to focus on sex and intimacy. Might not be appropriate for all the listeners out there, but you know, here you go. Let's see where we go to, because some couples struggle at some point, or rather most couples struggle at some point to maintain their sexual connection. But a lot of the advice that we're given on sex is either not very good or steeped in cultural or moral assumptions and expectations that do us no favours. In Come Together, the new book from leading sexual wellness educator, Dr Emily Nagoski, she takes on one of the most misunderstood subjects of all time, that being sex in long-term relationships, and shows us that most of what we've been taught about enjoying sex is wrong. With insight, humour and empathy, Come Together promises to radically transform the way you approach sex and desire and empower you to create long-term, fulfilling sexual connections. Text us your questions or comments, 2101-saturday-rnz.co.nz. doctor Emily Nagoski, kia ora, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you.
0: It's great to talk to you too. And I, I'm interested in this one because you've written Come Together, Before, you know, previously you wrote um, Come As You Are. Are people always coming up to you and asking about their sex lives or indeed offering stories of their sex lives?
1: Yes, both of those things all the time. Yes. Um, What kinds of things do people ask you? It's not perhaps a classic icebreaker. No, mostly people want to know whether or not they are normal and Almost universally, the answer is absolutely yes. You were just lied to. Uh, Your sex education was, of course, inadequate because so much of the sex education in the world is inadequate. And what you're experiencing is normal. And the more you worry about it, the more it will interfere with your access to pleasure. Mm. We'll get on to that in a second. But
0: um, you're a sex educator. This is your thing. And you found out that you were
1: doing it wrong? So writing a book about sex, you might think would be sort of super sexy. Uh, Turns out, no. Reading and writing and thinking and talking about sex all the time was so stressful that I lost all interest in actually having any sex with my husband, like for months at a time. Zero interest in doing anything. And so I did what anyone would do. I went to Google Scholar, and I looked at the peer-reviewed research on how couples sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. And what I found there contradicted the entire Sort of mainstream cultural conversation about how sex and long term relationships works. Because on the one hand, you have some people who say that, oh, intimacy is the enemy of the erotic and you need distance to mm. keep the spark alive. And other people say, no, intimacy is the foundation of the erotic. You need connection to keep the spark alive. And when you look at the research on Actual couples who really do sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term, they don't talk about the spark at all. Mm. They don't talk about desire and how much they crave intimacy. They talk about pleasure and whether or not they like the sex they are having and the steps that they took together to make sure that they were creating a connection that both of them really enjoyed. So this um,
0: this um idea of the spark and keeping this Mythical, magical spark alive. Where does that come from? What's the point of it?
1: Oh, I mean, it's capitalism. <laughs> the because... world really benefits from us being dissatisfied. Desire on a certain level is a dissatisfaction with what you have right now. In a way, desire for sex is being dissatisfied with how much sex you are having. Whereas pleasure is satisfaction, a deep enjoyment of what is happening in this moment. And to be fully, deeply satisfied in a relationship is antithetical to the goals of capitalism that wants you to feel a little bit empty inside. So you're, you know, always trying to buy something to fill the emptiness. Okay. Sorry, that probably wasn't the answer you were looking
0: for. No, I mean... If it's the answer, it's the answer. But I'm interested that these two things are so closely linked because where does this idea of the spark come from? Is it centuries old?
1: It's no, I mean, we all know that uh, marriage for a long time was simply a legal contract and the desire, the romance of it was in located outside of the marriage. And the idea that the spark belongs in the marriage really is an invention of the 20th century in particular. Um, the idea that your marriage partner should fulfill all of your hopes and dreams, meet all of your needs, not just be your best friend, but also be a person you totally can't wait to put your tongue in their mouth every day, no matter what's going on in your relationship or your life.
0: You do talk about how it's quite silly. Which I have to say I laughed out loud at.
1: Six being silly is uh like let's face it. We have a lot of things we could choose to do with our time. There are so many T V shows available to watch. Why would we instead choose to roll around and like touch puppies, each other's bodies? You like say? puppies. Absolutely. It is a form of play at its best. The stakes are low. There is nothing to lose. There is just Enjoyment and connection.
0: I'm interested in this idea that your marriage partner should be your everything, your best friend, your um, your lover, all the things, all the time. What does that say about monogamy, which so very many of us have grown up with as the "in quotes" ideal?
1: I think it has more to do with uh, the patriarchy, if you'll forgive me for bringing up another very sad topic. Um, It's not so much that we expect people in non-heterosexual relationships. The research has been very consistent for a couple of decades now that they are more likely to have uh, higher sexual and relationship satisfaction. They have more pleasurable sex. Their sex lasts longer. They're doing better overall than heterosexual couples. There is actually a whole chapter specifically for people in heterosexual type relationships Mm -hmm. because they have this specific struggle that I think is grounded in, you know, the When Harry Met Sally question of whether or not men and women can be friends. Because one of the, there's only three characteristics that I find characterize all couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. And monogamy is not one of them. You can have a great sexual connection either way. But they are really good friends who admire and trust each other. And if people go into a relationship not really believing that they can be friends with their partner in the same way that they can be friends with their friends, I'm not sure who your partner is if they're not your friend. We talk about um, how
0: sexual intercourse is just sort of meant to happen. And how toxic... Is that amongst some of the myths you say we have been sold?
1: Well, that's two toxic myths folded into one, because first of all, it's the assumption that if you're going to be having erotic, intimate contact with someone, it's going to be sexual intercourse, which it absolutely doesn't have to be. There are so many pleasurable things that people can do together. And the other is that it will just happen spontaneously. In the research, they call it spontaneous desire, where you just, uh, just desire sex out of the blue. You have a stray thought, you see a stray person, and you're Erica Moen, the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, draws response spontaneous desire as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Kaboom! You just want it out of the blue. And that absolutely is one of the normal healthy ways to experience desire. But a lot of us experience Sometimes spontaneous desire, and more often what the research calls responsive desire, where spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So suppose a couple sets up a time, they have a date night, and they, you know, get the childcare, they do the body care, they, you know, trim their nose hair and put on the body (laughs) glitter, and they show up. And they put their body in the bed and they let their skin touch their partner's skin, and their body goes, Oh, right, I really like this. I really like this person. What a good idea this was. That's responsive desire. Because what is it that people want when they want sex? That is a question I have asked several thousand people at this point. Mm. When I began asking it in workshops, people would flippantly off the top of their head just say, well, orgasm. Uh, but the thing is, most people can do that on their own. And if they can't, there are whole books and workshops just about that. So what is it that we want when we want sex with another person? I have found four big thing themes. Uh, I think it won't be surprising that the number one most common answer people give is connection. They want to feel that they are connecting with another person on a really like personal way. There are lots of ways that humans connect with each other. For some people, sex is a pretty peripheral way that they experience connection. And for some people, it is the most efficient and powerful way for them to experience connection with another person. And while sex itself is not a biological drive, meaning nothing bad happens to your body if you don't get it, connection is a drive. People can sicken and die of loneliness. And if sex is the primary way that they experience connection, then they're going to feel like something bad is happening in their relationship if they don't have access to sex. And there are lots of solutions for that. Most of them are about making sure you have other channels for experiencing connection in your relationship besides sexuality. Uh, But the second thing people talk about is shared pleasure. I don't just want to feel what it feels like to touch my skin against my partner's skin. I want them to enjoy it too. I want them to enjoy my pleasure and I want to enjoy their pleasure. There's something really important about the sharing of the pleasure. Those are two of the most common things people talk about. Mm. And so I guess that relationship
0: between pleasure and desire is one of the tricky ones to try to negotiate.
1: Yeah, we we live in the world of the desire imperative, as I call it in the book, where we think that that sparky, out-of-the-blue desire for sex is the most important thing, is the defining characteristic of a great sexual connection. And if you don't have that, then you don't have anything worth having. But when you look at the research, it turns out the couples who have a great sexual connection don't talk about that. What they talk about is liking the sex. If we put pleasure... At the center of our definition of sexual well-being, all the other pieces will fall into place. That doesn't mean that pleasure is easy or obvious, but as sex researcher and therapist Peggy Kleinplatz puts it, sometimes low desire is evidence of good judgment. What does she mean by that? So suppose we have a couple that has a low sexual interest, no sexual contact, and partner A walks into the therapist's office and says, I'm sorry this hurts my partner's feelings, but I'd be happy if we never had sex again. I used to be into it, and I'm just done. Uh, Peggy, as the therapist, will say, well, tell me about the sex you do not want. They will not be describing pleasurable, joyful, rolling around like puppies enjoying themselves sex. The sex they describe is dismal and disappointing and What I would love the world to remember is that it is not dysfunctional not to want sex you do not like. And so Peggy will ask the question, so what kind of sex is worth wanting? That's how we put pleasure at the center of our definition of sexual well-being. If you like the sex, then the motivation takes care of itself. What about when people have big
0: life changes? For example, having a baby. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: For example, something that a lot of people are getting in touch with this morning, uh, lots and lots of people texting in with ultimately the same kind of question, which is, what if menopause has completely killed your libido? I used to love sex prior to the menopause, one person says. After the menopause, I honestly have zero desire. Another person says, I love my husband, but if I never had sex again, honestly, I wouldn't mind.
1: Yes, exactly. So these, so, uh, being in perimenopause myself and what a delight it is. Oh, it's every not. day. It's a struggle, every day. right? Just, it's a thrilling experience. Um, and I can tell you from the research that there isn't a straightforward hormonal story about changes to our sexuality. Instead, it appears that if people struggle through menopause around their sexuality, it's mostly because of the combination of their body changing and so their relationship with their body changes their relationship changes and so their feelings about their partner change their whole like the meaning and purpose of their life is in a massive transition and also there are tissue changes so uh decreasing estrogen makes the genitals more sensitive to potentially tearing and experiencing pain. And again, it's normal not to want sex you don't like. So if intercourse becomes painful, of course, you're not going to be interested and you might even start to dread sex. So there are a lot of good reasons why people's relationship with sexuality can change with menopause. And all of those are addressable, uh, Medical intervention for the tissue issue, as I call it, uh, is wonderfully effective. Vaginal estradiol for the win. And also all of the psychological issues are addressable individually or with a therapist or in connection with your partner. There are partners who their attraction to their partner changes because their bodies change. That is pretty rare in my experience, Almost all partners are worth being in a relationship with, which means they're interested in being connected with you, the human being. And when your body changes, their attraction changes because they're interested in you, the human being, not just your specific individual body parts. So having conversations with a partner about your body and the way it is changing there's a whole chapter on navigating Mm. change both in your body and uh in the ways that life just throws change at us but it is not a fundamentally biological issue it is addressable through really straightforward strategies
0: Mm. Uh, another question that's come in um from sandy this one says any discussion of sex needs to include the health benefits of orgasm for senior women with or without partners involved what do you reckon?
1: I would say it's not orgasm itself, but it is arousal and in particular, pleasure. The chemical, the hormonal changes and benefits come with high levels of arousal and pleasure. So the longer you spend in that state before you have an orgasm, the better it is for you. Um, you write about how
0: your sexuality is a garden to cultivate. Run us through that.
1: Yes. So imagine that on the day you're born, you are given this little plot of rich and fertile soil. And this is the garden that will become your sexuality and your family of origin and your culture of origin. Begin to plant ideas about your body and sexuality and gender and intimacy and closeness and love and safety and... They tend the garden for you. They teach you to care for the garden. So by the time you get to adulthood, you have this garden full of ideas about who you're supposed to be as a sexual person. And some of us get really lucky and only beautiful things are planted and all we have to do is cultivate and harvest. And others of us, like me, have some really toxic stuff. Planted in our gardens and it's not fair because we didn't get to choose any of that stuff. No one waited and asked permission before they were like, would it be okay with you? If I plant this idea about the ways your body is fundamentally unlovable and you always need to be working to change it, would that be okay with you? Nope. They just put that right in there and it grew and took deep root in our gardens. It's not fair, but it is an opportunity to go row by row through the garden and make choices about what we want to keep and what we want to throw on the compost heap to rot. When you get into a long-term relationship early on, you're probably going to visit each other's gardens and like seeing if you like what you see there. Gradually, though, you transition into cultivating a shared garden. You bring over your favorite things from your garden and they bring over their favorite things from their garden. And you really hope that they don't strangle each other. And you really (laughs) hope that you're not accidentally bringing over some weeds of the body self-criticism and the sexual shame that so many of us were raised with. And if that stuff takes root there, then it's another opportunity to throw that stuff on the compost heap to rot. Why is there so much moralizing around sex? Oh, sex is both very silly and also very important. Who controls sex controls the genetic destiny of the species. And there are people who have strong opinions about who should be allowed to move into the next generation. The origins of my profession, sex education, stem from the eugenics movement. Marie Stopes was not neutrally just trying to help women have more pleasurable sex lives. She had an agenda to Mm -hmm. make sure the right kind of families were having the right kind of babies. So controlling women's bodies in particular, but women of color's bodies especially, and everyone's bodies, is moral. They try to internalize it so that we each individually feel like we are doing it wrong, Because they have a vision of what the world is supposed to be. And uh, our behavior gets to control whether or not that world happens.
0: And talking about it having deep roots to continue that uh, theme of the garden, that really continues right on sometimes. Because how often is pleasure taught about in sex education? Oh, We're taught
1: about mechanics, but certainly, you
0: know, in my sex education of many decades ago, I don't think anyone ever mentioned pleasure.
1: No, me either. The only thing I remember from my sex education, I went to high school in the 90s in Delaware and uh, on the test, there was a multiple choice item and the the prompt is, he lied. And the correct answer was the withdrawal method. (gasps) Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Speechless. Sex education in the 90s in Delaware. And I didn't even have particularly terrible sex education. I didn't have the lady come in and t- compare a girl who has had sex to a used piece of tape or a chewed piece of gum. I didn't have the worst sex education. It was just regular bad.
0: Yes. And so changing that is presumably something that is pretty important if. We are wanting to reframe how people think
1: about this. Yes, for at least 50 years, we have known the answer of how to solve a lot of the problems around uh, sexual well-being globally. Uh, Obviously, economic and educational opportunities for women and girls generally. Access to affordable, effective birth control options, including abortion, is another piece. And comprehensive, evidence-based, medically accurate, inclusive pleasure-oriented sex education is maybe, I mean, none of those pieces are easy, but I would say that that's the most difficult one. We have organizations in the US that are lobbying state by state to get mandates for the sex education, at least to be medically accurate. It's a pretty low bar uh, to be to have a state regulation saying, hey, the information you give students has to be factually accurate. But that is where we are right now. Mm. Uh, and, The reason why people resist so hard the idea of giving sex education to young people, age-appropriate sex education, is they're afraid that by talking about it, that is in some way giving them the idea to have it, or it's somehow equivalent to, like, actually doing sexual things, which it isn't in any way, but... Because so many of us, our sex education was so poor, just thinking about the idea, just us having this conversation right now is giving this flash of emotion in people's bodies, this shame, this wordless, sourceless discomfort. So people don't even want to engage with the beginnings of the question because they inherited this Uh, So the source of mine, I can identify pretty explicitly. Mm. I was driving home from the library with my mother. I must have seen the word vagina in a library book because on the drive home, I asked my mom what a vagina was. Uh, I don't remember what she said. Uh, And when I got home, I looked it up in a medical encyclopedia. So the medical encyclopedia told me what it was. But what I remember is she had this flush of embarrassment and confusion and shame and The encyclopedia told me what it was and my mother's reaction told me how to feel about it. Now, I know for sure she did not intend to communicate that I ought to feel ashamed of my body. And there absolutely are people whose adult caregivers did communicate explicitly, you should feel ashamed of these parts Mm. of yourself. But I learned in that moment to associate that flash of emotion with those parts of my body. And if I hadn't had all these years of training and experience and made an explicit choice not to follow the rules that were set for me by a culture that does not care about my well-being and satisfaction, I might be conveying those same body-based signals to other people. So it takes people making a choice to confront the shame that they were taught deep, silently. Hmm.
0: Lots and lots of questions coming in for my guest, Emily Nagoski, her new book, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Just before we get in onto some of those questions, you write a lot about, um, finding the accelerator and finding the breaks, uh, which is a, a, a quite a useful way, I guess, to, to think about how to
1: deal with sex. Yes, this is actually The mechanism in your brain that controls how you respond to sex related information. Uh, just like how most things in your brain work, it's a pairing of an accelerator, which responds to any sex related information in the environment, anything you see, hear, smell, or touch, taste, anything you think, believe, or imagine, and of course, all your body sensations. Anything your brain interprets as being related to sex, it sends a turn on signal that many of us are familiar with. And at the same time, in parallel, you have a break that's noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, everything you think, believe, or imagine, and all of your body sensations that your brain interprets as a potential threat, and it sends a turn-off signal. So the process of becoming aroused in your brain is this dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And it turns out when people are struggling, sometimes it's because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator, but a lot of the time it's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. Life stress. For me, for example, life stress was the thing that was keeping the brakes on, and so I would try to follow my own advice. I would put my body in the bed, let my skin touch my partner's skin, and instead of my body going, oh, right, I really like this, I would cry and fall asleep because I was too stressed and exhausted for my brain to be able to access pleasure. The brakes were on so hard so much of the time because of my stress. Other factors that can hit the brakes, really commonly body image issues, really commonly sexual shame, histories of sexual trauma that so many people have, uh, relationship difficulties, even small things like having the bed make noise or worrying about being interrupted or overheard. All of those little floating niggles in your brain can keep the brakes on, mm. which prevents the accelerator from doing what it wants to do. Lots of people getting in touch. And actually this question sort of touches a little bit on what you were
0: just talking about there. Um, Does depression and anxiety medication reduce libido? And if so, is there anything you can do to bring the sex drive up again?
1: So in particular, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRI, that class so Frozac, for example, um, has been known to affect sexual functioning. Uh, I have been on it myself. I experience it as a change in my sexual functioning because when you frame it as a loss, then it sort of inherently problematizes it. And if you turn it into a problem in your mind, that makes it something that's going to hit the brakes. What I recommend is instead exploring with curiosity. Hmm, What's this? Oh, this is different from what it used to be. I wonder what feels good now. Transitioning entirely away from the idea that desire is the central thing and shifting into focusing on pleasure so you show up with someone you admire and trust and really enjoy i hope it's not controversial that it sex is better when you really like the other person or people involved you show up and you explore what feels good and in that exploration, arousal will happen and, uh, people do experience delays in their sexual response. So orgasm takes a little bit longer or sometimes goes away altogether. Those are trade-offs that people choose because antidepressants can be life-saving medication. And if it is interfering a lot with your well-being and your relationship, then talk to your medical provider about transitioning to a drug that's in a different class.
0: Mm. Good advice. Another one here, actually, um, which is interesting from the point of view of a 62-year-old single woman, this texter says. Um, she says she still desires sex, but it seems all the men I meet don't. They have health problems or are scared of not being able to perform. My current male friend seems terrified of intimacy and will change the subject every time I hint at taking things further. She says sex is not all about intercourse, but how do I gently encourage him?
1: Oh, gosh. There's a lot of there. Another patriarchy question. Mm. Yeah, there's so many things in there. I was having lunch recently with a group of sex therapists, which if you ever get the chance, I highly recommend. But they were talking about how a large proportion of their clients these days are individual men coming in because they need to talk about all the feelings they have about their genitals. Just like women, they have been fed a lot of garbage messages about their bodies and have to let go of a lot of really bogus messaging, particularly because masculinity is so tied to the blood flow, just like the performance of that one body part. And that's a message that is difficult to process and let go of. So it might be that he is worried about his sexual response. Uh So the advice is approach it with curiosity, playfulness, compassion, gentleness, and also my definition of perfect sex. First of all, it has to be everyone involved has to be glad to be there and free to leave at any time with no unwanted consequences, including no unwanted emotional consequences and no unwanted pain. Perfect sex is when that's all true. And also you turn toward whatever is happening in this moment with compassion, confidence, joy, and a sense of playfulness so that if bodies are not responding in the way that you expect them to, and there are normal changes that come with aging where body responses are going to change, you don't worry about it. You don't tie it to anyone's identity or to anyone's worth, certainly, even though that's where so many of our brains have been trained to go. You just say, oh, what's happening right now is this, and there are a lot of fun things we could do with that, or we could transition our attention to somewhere else entirely. Talking about sex can be difficult for at least two primary reasons. First of all, we are worried that if we talk about what we want and like, our partner will look at us with horror and never be able to think about us in the same way again mm. and the other is that we're worried we're going to hurt our partner's feelings and in an early a relationship you want that conversation about sexuality to be an invitation to greater closeness and it could be so potentially easy for it to turn into accidentally causing each other pain so Moving really gently with the conversation, having uh, what Laurie Mintz, the sex therapist, calls the meta conversation. I would like us to have a conversation about intimacy. And I'm a little worried that you might have this response or that I might feel this way. What sort of ground rules could we set up? Or is there a way that we can talk about this where we would avoid potentially some of those more difficult things? Have a conversation about the conversation.
0: Mm. Several people getting in touch saying that they are men in heterosexual relationships, I think all of them, and saying that for whatever reason, um, if sex has not been happening so much recently, they feel the loss of connection. This one from Peter saying, a lot of women have been taught to think that men only want sex for their own pleasure, but most of us want the connection, as Emily says. How damaging is that, um, I think it was Sigmund Freud who had the notion that men were obsessed with sex and women were neurotic maniacs.
1: Yeah, it'd be okay with me if we could just stop teaching Freud altogether, because not a lot. I mean, he had some great ideas. The subconscious, such a good insight. Everything else, really just getting in the way of people having great sex lives these days. Um, Men long for connection just as much as women do because we are all humans and that is a natural human process. And men have been cut off from access to connection even more than women have. When you're raised to be a boy... You know, on the day you're born, you're given a handbook of rules and regulations saying, here's how you're supposed to be a sexual person. Here's how you're supposed to live in this body. Here's how you're supposed to love other people. You're given access to three emotions altogether. You can uh, be angry. We know men are allowed to be angry. You're allowed to feel winning and horny. You are not given permission as a boy and then as a man to feel sad or lonely. And so... If culturally you have not been granted permission to have and express those feelings, then how do you reach out to your partner to say, when this is missing from our relationship, it feels like we are disconnected and I miss you. Being able to overcome all of those nonsense, trash, garbage messages that are totally unnecessary in our lives, but man, are they deeply entrenched in our lives. That is. I know it's not easy, basically dismantling the patriarchy from our brains, but the reward is having access to the kind of pleasure that turns the universe into rainbows. It's worth it.
0: It's worth it. Thank you very much. uh, Emily Nagoski there, Dr. Emily Nagoski's new book, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections, published by Vermillion.